Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Once upon a time, I wish in a far-off kingdom, more than anything, lived a young maiden, a sad young lad, more than jewels, I wish, and a childless baker, more than life, I wish, with his wife, more than anything, more than the moon, I wish, the king is giving a festival, more than life, I wish, I wish to go to the festival, more than riches, I wish my cow would give us some milk, more than anything. I wish we had a child. Yes, we love stories. We're made of stories to a certain degree. Actually, so there used to be a sports announcer named Kurt Gowdy, and he was kind of famous for knowing little stories about all the athletes that he was announcing about. And there was a comedian named Jeff Cesario who used to do kind of a rendering of him that went something like this. Kincaid is dropping back to pass. He was born in a Volvo. No, he's going to run it. He's at the 50, the 40, the 30. He's allergic to bananas, the 20, the 10. And, and it can be a little bit like that, right? We like stories. We need, no need to hear them every second, though. There's a place for stories and maybe a place for other things, like concepts or being in the moment. And that very much uh, gets into the work uh, of our, our main guest on today's show. Uh, Peter Brooks uh, is author of Seduced by Story, uh, The Use and Abuse of Narrative, and a Sterling Professor Emeritus of Comparative Literature at Yale University. Um, and for, well, first of all, welcome to our show, Peter Brooks. This is a terrific book. It's not a long book, but it sprawls through through Henry James and and therapists like Freud and Winnicott and jurists like Sotomayor and uh, and Cardozo. You really go a lot of places with this book. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah, my book is at once a critique of the what I see as the mindless proliferation of story in our culture and a kind of reflection on the power of stories and our need for them. Right. And so, I mean, in a way, you would be an unlikely person to have taken at least some of the tack that you're taking in this book. You're associated with the whole field of literary analysis called narratology. You published the book Reading for Plot in 1984. It's kind of a canonical piece of criticism at this point. And I think you've referred to this book as a disabusive sequel or something like that. That's right. It's a sequel uh, that is somewhat disabused and perhaps a little bit acidic, particularly in the first chapter, which is the polemical one. Um, I want to think about, um, you know, this kind of storification of reality that's been going on in our culture. It first came to my attention when George W. Bush was appointing his cabinet and he presented them saying about each of each of them, each person has got their own story that is so unique. Yes, actually, we can we can give that right to you. A cat. This is a one right here. He's got a wonderful story. He was a refugee as a young boy from Cuba. He understands American values. He's grown to appreciate them. All right, Peter Brooks, take it from there. <laughs> Yes, and then with Colin Powell, I think he said, a great American story. And then with Norman Mineta, it got even shorter. I love his story. And it seemed that for George W. Bush, story was kind of his sole mental operation. And then I began to think about how narrative has seems to have taken over politics, media, uh, corporation. Each corporation 
has its story to tell us. Uh, you look at the box of cookies you just bought, and it tells you about our story. Your toothpaste will also tell you about our story, and so on. And uh, it, it took over academic fields, uh, including such as economics and medicine, even. There's now a narrative medicine movement. Uh, it didn't seem to lend itself very well to story. Um, and I began thinking about what the psychologist Jerome Bruner called the narrative construction of reality. I think a very important concept. Uh, yes, we do construct a great deal of our uh, lives uh, through narrative and our understanding of of what the world around us is all about through narrative. And uh, psychologists suggest that uh, we gain this capacity to understand stories and then to tell stories very early on, probably around age two or between age two or three. Um, and Bruner says that, you know, children don't learn so much as experimental scientists experimenting on reality so much as through swapping stories, um, often very false stories. But anyway, that's how they learn what reality is all about. Um, to which I say, yes, but is, is everything story? And are our lives uh, truly stories? Um, I think that we tell stories about our lives, but our lives may, may not coincide with those stories. There are certain things we cannot control uh, through our storytelling. Right. I think, Bru um, I think Bruner's even more radical, right? I mean, he essentially says the, 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 self, is, the self is a collection of stories. That's what the self is. Correct. Stop yeah, thinking it, that it, it exists in some platonic state other than the collection of stories about itself. Absolutely right. I mean, that's late Bruder. I think he became more and more convinced that life was nothing but story, that we are our stories. But I think that living and telling uh, need to be distinguished uh, from one another. And um, if you confuse living and telling, uh, problems come along, not least in the law, right? Um, um, if you were adjudicating uh, a legal case, for instance, you don't want to confuse the stories told by with what actually happened. And if you think about, for instance, the, the conflicts we now have in the telling of American history, um, uh, does it begin in 1776 or 1619, for instance, with the arrival of the first um, uh, slaves on the American soil. Um, stories can give you very different versions of realities, and um, you've got to be able to distinguish critically between them. Otherwise, stories can degenerate into myths. People lose sight of them as fictional and come to believe in them. They're mobilized by them. Um, for instance, by the story of a stolen election. Um, which uh, led directly to the insurrection of January 6th. Right, and I want to I hang on to that part uh, to the uh, end, end of the show when we're talking to Elise Wong. Uh, I think it'll fit uh, well in there. I want to just push back gently uh, against um, one of the things that you said, and, and that is, and I think it's sort of the 90s are this time when you start to get people like Bruner, and I think it's a Rita Karen or Charon uh, who writes the first book about narrative medicine, honoring the stories of illness. And Correct, I. Yes. I, here, let me just sort of let me tell you my own story. So my own story is that my uh, primary care physician retired after treating me for more than two decades. And so he kind of knew my story. Uh, and I'm realizing that, meanwhile, the profession is more and more taken over by big medical conglomerates that buy up multiple hospitals and then buy up medical practices too, medical groups. And that really 
my story is very inconvenient to them. They want to look at, you know, right. I'm a 68-year-old white male with five risk factors. That's who I am to them. They don't want to right. know my story. But I want a doctor who sees me as a person and knows my story. I want narrative medicine. I, I don't think that's an encumbrance. I don't either. I don't either. I mean, I'm very pro-narrative. Uh, it's just that it seems to me it's gotten a little bit out of out of hand. And there's this kind of proliferation of silly stories that we don't need, uh, particularly coming from the corporate world and from advertising and so on. Um, I mean, parenthetically, I ask myself, whatever happened to the singing commercial um, and the lyric? We're going to get to uh, that in this. You know, we're going to get that uh, totally in the second segment of today's show. Okay. But, I, but I know also, Peter, I would hate for you to think that because you're on a public radio show, you can't crap on NPR, which I know <laughs> I know you want to be able to do. So, I mean, look, one of the reasons that politicians begin to tell their stories in terms, uh, t- talk about themselves in terms of story, is that they know the media will regurgitate it effectively. It, it's a good way to get themselves across. And, and, and I know that you know, I, I used to work at a newspaper where there, one of my colleagues was a guy named Tom Condon who used to put up on the bulletin board stories with the slogan, thank you for not using an anecdotal lead. And, and an, oh, anecdotal, really? an anecdotal lead in journalism is, well, I'll read you one from this Sunday. This is from the New York Times. Not long ago, Joe Mueller would have seemed an unlikely person to help bury the political legacy of Donald J. Trump. Mr. Mueller, a 24-year-old Republican committeeman and law student in Lancaster Township, PA, voted for Mr. Trump in 2016. He voted for him again in 2020, but this time with some misgivings and on and on and on. And, and so the anecdotal lead is that, you know, it's uh, Robert Braithwaite uh, didn't, when he was having his cereal that morning uh, and talking to his kid who's in third grade, level, he didn't know he was going to be in a massive tractor-trailer accident, you know, instead of just telling you there was a tractor-trailer accident. And I know you Absolutely. think that NPR is kind of guilty of assuming that we are incapable of understanding simply a concept, right? We need a story to go with it. I think it's just become such a, a boring trope. Uh, when I open the New York Times, I want to get through the anecdote, push it away and get to the substance of the story. But I'm sure they must, in the journalism school, they must teach people that they have to start with with a story, with an anecdote, because it's coming. it's become absolutely universal. And of course, NPR gets involved through StoryCorps, um, which is kind of a noble idea, but I wonder. The notion is that everyone's story is worth listening to and preserving for the future. Is that really true? I mean, uh, it's based uh, on a kind of uh, nice, uh, but maybe mistaken belief that all stories are important. Um, It's just the way um, someone says to you, "Uh, let me tell you my story. Um, Well, his story may convey some important truth or some um, something revelatory about himself, but maybe not. A lot of stories are trivial, boring, um, or worse, uh, they're toxic, like uh, the stories we've been dealing with in this country um, during the last presidential regime. And right. Following that. I, I think the other thing that happens, though, is because we the media is so journalism is so hungry for stories that the, there becomes a powerful incentive to generate them. And I, I occasionally not as illustriously as you do, but I occasionally teach at Yale and the uh, seminar that I teach is about kind of political journalism and, and now the kind of more extended political media. 
And in 2018, when we were doing the course, we had a class slogan. And it was based on the idea that Donald Trump had come out of reality television, right? He'd been the, uh, the star of The Apprentice. And in reality television, stuff has to happen, right? Somebody has to throw wine on somebody else or something has <laughs> to happen on any given, uh, you know, Real Housewives episode or, or The Apprentice or whatever. And then he carried this over I- into his presidency. So our motto was every day something has to happen. Because Trump wanted to be in the news every day. So and he understood that the news eats stories. So he better have one. Yes, absolutely. And I believe that notion of the story of the day, which is released by the White House earlier in the day, then is leads to the feeding frenzy for the rest of the day by the media, uh, was David Gergen's yeah. idea when he was an advisor to Ronald Reagan. Am I not uh, wrong about that? You are totally, um, you're totally right about that. But then you sort of see what the January 6th committee did, which I thought was really smart. They weaponized stories against Trump and against the insurrectionists. So suddenly you have you, you could have somebody up there kind of explaining the way committees sometimes do what went wrong. But instead you said so you've got these Georgia election workers, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, talking about what happened to them. You've got story after story being told there. And I thought it was a tremendously effective way to communicate uh, about this. And, and, and Peter, I think it had another layer, too, which was that the committee was thinking we might not be able to indict a post-sitting president or get the Justice Department to do that. But we can tell this story and it becomes part of history. Uh, that becomes his legacy and how he's understood. So at minimum, we want to control that. I, I want you to react, though. No, I, I think that's right. And being able to control the narrative in all sorts of situations is very important. Um, something that police interrogators have learned when they're trying to get a confession from a criminal suspect, for instance. And I think I think the uh, January 6th committee did an absolutely brilliant job. But I would still say there's another step to be taken beyond story, which is now adjudication of those facts they've put forward and those narratives that they've convinced us of um, and, and bring the man to, to justice. But uh, I'm not sure that's going to happen. No, I'm not either. Uh, and, and well, we can kind of circle back to that. But I think it's also worth talking a little bit about, well, if we're drowning in stories, stories are great. They have their place. They're a very effective way to make certain kinds of points. And we are just wired up for them anyway, going back to our time as hunter gatherers. We're not going to stop telling stories. But if we're telling too many stories, what are they taking the place of? What are they supplanting that we're not doing as well or as much? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting and difficult question. I think that the the lyric has been downplayed in our culture. I'm not sure. I'm not saying that people aren't still writing poetry and reading poetry and so on, but certainly it's become a, a minor uh, form for communication. And I think a rational argument has also been downplayed, particularly in the political world. Um, it doesn't have any valence anymore, it seems to me. Um, so my, I mean, my argument is that. Um, really criticism is our only possible response critique of what's going on in stories how they're presenting the world to us and so on and so that following my first polemical chapter i see my other chapters as trying to work a kind of hygiene if you will on the, on our notion of stories and how we tell stories and what they're what they're about and i i mean i as i said before i'm very much a partisan of stories and i want to i want to uh, bring them back uh, to their uh, beneficial function in our society. But I, I don't want to see them as automatically valorized as either good or bad, because they can serve the, the worse or the better cause, you know? 
I, I think one of the more alarming indications that, that you're right about this uh, was, in fact, how bad people were at, at scientific literacy during the pandemic. You know, viruses are not, they don't have interesting stories. They're not even really alive. Uh, and, you know, when it came time for people to understand what this was, how it was spreading, what possibly could work against it, um, the, the, there wasn't a lot of really good storytelling you could do about that. There was a lot of good storytelling you could do about crazy conspiracy theories and, uh, you know, that, that were anti-scientific. And we'll get to those in the uh, segment with Elise. But, but it seemed as though Americans just given a lot of science to digest with their lives at stake just thought, well, I don't know. We don't know what a spike protein is. You know, it's not very interesting anyway. No, that's very interesting. No, I think there, were, there was a failure on the part of the storytellers in that case to um, to to invent a, an effective narrative. I recently read um, an opinion in the case by a judge in Florida um, invalidating um, President Biden's mask mandate. And you should see the kind of idiocy of the reasoning that goes on in this case. You say uh, it all turns on the analysis of the word sanitation. Uh, And this judge goes to the dictionary and she comes out deciding that sanitation only has to do with cleaning up bathrooms and does not apply to wearing face masks, for instance. Uh, So uh, it's just an illustration of your point that there was an ineffective uh, narrative of, of sanitation and self-protection. So I want to um, actually play a clip that is essentially how your book begins. Um, this is from the final episode of Game of Thrones. You're going to have to hear uh, Tyrion Lannister. Uh, what's basically happened at this point, I can tell you what's happening in the plot, but what's really happened is that the showrunners need about $200 million more to finish this story, and HBO <laughs> is not going to give it to them. So uh, here's what Tyrion says. This is uh, a two-cap. What unites people? Armies, gold, flags, stories. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. Nothing can stop it. No enemy can defeat it. You know, in a way, he's saying something that Zelensky uh, might be saying too. You know, that, I mean, that's he's uh, Zelensky's up against a more powerful army. Uh, but I think part of his idea is, if I can tell this story effectively, we can win. Absolutely. No, I I I don't disagree with Tyrion. I just think that it's a good example of the power that we've conferred on stories, particularly in the political realm. Um, that the best story. Uh, defeats all the other armies, you know? Yeah, which I think doesn't work. And if you want to, I'm going to offer this for your next interview that you do about this. If you want proof of of how right you are and how dangerous all this stuff is, I'm sure you've seen this article. It's appeared in a couple of different places. But it turns out that Georgia Maloney, Italy's first fascist prime minister since Mussolini is obsessed with Tolkien. Uh, and, and yes, yes, isn't that isn't that interesting and disturbing? Actually, yeah. Yes. And there's there's an example of a story being twisted around and perverted. I mean, yeah, I know Tolkien. There's been a lot of exegesis about uh, Tolkien, but she clearly sees this as 
kind of white agrarian farmer types who are kind of virtuous dealing with dark-skinned invaders who want to overthrow their way of life, you know? <laughs> so, but the idea yeah. that a prime minister uh, of an industrialized Western Europe nation is sitting there talking about Tolkien is a little bit alarming to me. Um, absolutely. But it, it's, uh, it's not atypical, right? I mean, uh, these stories that are sort of all encompassing, all explanatory, and that play on resentments, uh, fear of replacement, and so on, uh, could be very powerful in the world. I mean, I was watching a, a not very good uh, a German film the other night about uh, the Weimar Republic in 1933. And, uh, you know, you, how did that one evil man take over the whole of a great and powerful country and turn it to evil ends? Um, well, we've had our own brush with that. So. Right. And it seems to me, uh, we're going to wrap up this segment here. One of the works of art, I think, recently that is very self-conscious about this question of story is the musical Hamilton. And all the way through, the characters are talking about who's going to tell the story of tonight. Ultimately, Hamilton's wife, Eliza, sings near the end of the play, oh, let me be a part of the narrative in the story that they will write someday. Let this right. moment be the first chapter where you decide to stay. Uh, and and there's just a sense all the way through of with Hamilton. And Eliza, I think, is also saying, as a woman, Am I going to be included in the story-making apparatus because Native American mm -hmm. people and black people and, uh, and and women are not really part of the American story very much at that point historically? I think Lin-Manuel Miranda really kind of nails that down very nicely. Yes. Who lives, who dies, who tells our story. All right. I you, think it's a, you, the curtain line at Act One. Right. You just stepped on our musical punchline, but we're going to go out with it anyway. Uh, we'll be back after this to talk about advertising. Okay. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I want to 
ticket to anywhere Maybe we make a deal Maybe together we can get somewhere Any place is better Starting from zero, got nothing to lose Maybe we'll make something Me, myself, I got nothing Songs like Fast Car by Tracy Chapman often do sometimes tell stories, too. You know, we're talking about uh, narrative and whether we're drowning in it, swamped by it right now. Peter Brooks is the author of Seduced by Story, The Use and Abuse of Narrative. One of the things that Peter writes about in his book uh, is about um, commercials, about advertising. And I thought, who better to talk to us about this than uh, my old friend Chris Knopp, a retired CEO of the advertising firm Minson Hoke, but even more relevantly, now currently a full-time novelist. So he decided to to go long, basically. Uh, so, Chris, welcome back to our airwaves, first of all. Nice to be here, Colin. So was there sort of a noticeable tipping point in your long and storied career when that idea of story suddenly became, I mean, it wasn't enough anymore to say nine out of 13 dentists prefer uh, Crest. Uh, you had to tell some kind of story? Yeah, I think... Uh probably around the late 80s, mm. early 90s. And, um, you know, for the simple fact that those storytelling commercials were so fabulously successful, um, some of the best spots ever ever produced. And it worked so well that people started thinking, geez, maybe this is a better approach for all the reasons that, that Professor Brooks went into. They're so powerful and so compelling. Uh, and and if you ha- if you're trying to sell something or get a message across, what better way? Right. So I'm going to play a commercial. I'm going to have both of you react to it. This is a commercial for travelers because we're sitting here in Connecticut, uh, and at least I am. Uh, and uh, I'll set it up a little bit because it's there's a visual component that you're not seeing. You're going to see in a series of kind of jump cuts a father and daughter. It starts out with the daughter as a little girl running around the hardware store helping out her father. She gets older. She has more to contribute as a teenager, and gra- gradually you see her grow up to a to be a woman. She has more to contribute, uh, and so at some point. A tree falls over and hits the hardware store, which from Traveler's point of view is very important. All right. So uh, now you know everything you need to know. Uh, Cat, B1. June, grab me a box of two-inch slotted screws, please. Wood or metal? Wood. Dad, we really got to organize this place. It's organized. Yeah, not really. June, grab me a box of two-inch slotted screws, please. Got it. Here you go. What do you got going, Dad? 20 gallons by the morning. Color? Red. Oh, NC62. Middle section, down by the bottom. Got it. Thanks, Dad. Looks good. Looks great. What are these for? It's time. two-inch slotted screws. If it matters to you, we'll help protect it. Got it, Mom. Travelers, it's better under the umbrella. I should have said the jingling sound you hear is the dad turning the keys to the store over to his daughter so she can start running it. So, so Chris, I'm such a sap. I'm getting choked up here <laughs> listening to this story of intergenerational striving. Uh, so, so how does it work for you as a commercial? Well, you know, I, I have a personal bias against uh too much sort of mawkish you know sentimentality i mean i i i like the professor i'm kind of sick of that um i like more of the you know the uh when there's humor attached to it or there's there's more of a fun twist 
to the whole thing, or there's some dramatic power. You know, I mentioned, you know, you're asking about when it all started. I think the commercial 1984 with uh, the Apple spot, uh, you know, heaving the hammer yeah. through the big. I mean, that was very powerful. And that was a story all told in 60 seconds. And that's the kind of thing that I've uh, much more appealing to me. Uh, not that the travel spot is a bad spot. It's just not kind of my taste. Yeah, actually, that was right when Peter's book came out, too, 1984. So his yeah. first book. So, Peter, yeah, give us your thoughts about this. I've just played a commercial for you. But, yeah, you, you, I think you're kind of in Chris's camp that this, well, at least it yeah, maybe deprives I, us of something I am. you missed. It, it, It's overly sentimental, mawkish, as Chris said. Um, but it's it's not ineffective. You know, I mean, uh, what is Travelers selling? It's selling life insurance. So it's dealing with questions of life and death and, as you say, intergenerational um uh, relations and so on. And it's actually a fairly sophisticated way to sell life insurance to someone, you know, I mean, about um, the fact that you're going to disappear sometime and you want to uh, take care of those who who live after you. Um, I think stories are just um, remarkable in what they can do. Um, it would I suppose that you know, 20 years before that Travelers commercial, you might have had a singing commercial, uh, which would have been more fun, perhaps, but maybe not as effective. Right. In your book, you talk about how you miss the jingle. I, I'm actually going to yeah. give you guys, uh, I found one that's storytelling and a jingle together. Uh, so uh, here we go. This is uh, B2. I don't think I have to explain this one at all, but who knows? B2. Hey, guys. Seen that new driver yet? Let's give him the business. Right. Make him sing a shape of jingle. Hey, here he is now. Okay, you, up on the barrel. Okay, rookie, come on. Every new man's got to sing the Schaefer jingle. But sing. Come on, sing. You better sing, boy. Schaefer hey, is the one beer to now. have when you're having more than once. Sing. The most rewarding flavor in this man's world people who are having fun Schaefer is the one beer to have when you're having more than one Was that alright? Not bad, kid. So, so Peter Brooks, you can have your beer and drink it too, right? Uh, you get storytelling and the jingle. Right. Um, and that plays on a previously known ad, right, when mm -hmm. you're having more than one. And so it, um, it, ups, it ups the sophistication of it because you're, um, you're, you're playing with a previously existing message and jingle. Uh, it's kind of fun. Yeah. Although, Chris, jingles are expensive, right? You got to hire somebody to write a jingle. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Uh, there's a couple of things that have happened in the in advertising world. It's, it, it is expensive, and it's expensive to buy music rights. And with the way spots now turn over so quickly because all the data-driven analysis, you're gonna, you want to have more spots to air, and you want to turn them over more quickly. So that kind of militates against very expensive production values. So that's one of the reasons why jingles have sort of kind of subsided. I, I want to mention a, a spot where they, it wasn't a jingle exactly, but it's a, it was a Staples spot and it was a, a back to school sale. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the song playing in the background was, it's the most wonderful time of the year. 
And the dad is happily running through the store buying up all these school supplies so, so we can unload his kids back into the classroom. <laughs> so very, very funny uh, and very effective. And it was a story all told without any any narrative at all. Yeah, Chris, I'm wondering, you know, as you segued from I should say that not only do I know Chris and he's been on the show and stuff like that, I even uh, did a little work at one point for, for Minutes and Hope. Uh, and um, have you seg- as you segued, segued from master of all advertising to uh, to a writer of detective fiction and fiction in general, I don't know. As, are there things, ways that you can make connections between those two worlds? Did your life in advertising teach you things about story and storytelling that, that turn, up, turn up in your book somehow? Yeah, well, I think uh, absolutely. I mean, story even a 60 second spot or even a 30 second spot needs a, a beginning, a middle and an end. And uh, I feel very strongly about having a strong plot. It can't be a, a detective or a mystery novelist without good, strong plots. Um, I think it also informs dialogue writing because you have to write, you know, for radio, you need to get a lot of information in it as efficiently as possible. So I think all that helped that and the, and the, and the horror of a deadline coming at you like with, with something you know well, Colin. Yes, I, all, all too well. All too well. So how, Pe- how motivating that can be. Right. So, Peter Brooks, I think one of the more pernicious areas uh, of advertising and story, use of story uh, is in political advertising. Uh, and uh, talk about deciding that we're too feeble-minded to care about concepts or policies. So we're going to play uh, an ad from uh, Martha McSally, uh, who's a Republican running for Congress at that point. Uh, so this is B3 Cat. 26 years in uniform. She's taken the fight to the enemy and the establishment. The U.S. Air Force decided Martha McSally had the right stuff. The first female pilot to fly in combat. Colonel McSally is not afraid of a good fight. She has launched a one-woman campaign against a military policy in Saudi Arabia that forced her to wear a long black Islamic robe over her Air Force uniform. I absolutely refuse to bow down to Sharia law. After eight years of fighting, I won my battle for the religious freedom of American servicewomen. Now I'm deployed to D.C. to fight for Arizona. So, Peter Brooks, take it away. Wow. Uh, the, the fight metaphor uh, with a little bit of anti-Islam and the claim that uh, we're being endangered by Sharia law, it's all there. Um, but you notice the kind of McSally uh, story then leads to someone like uh, Santos, uh, recently elected to the House. He's a very good storyteller. He's a very effective storyteller, story Peter. Fake, you know? <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't go to college where he said he did. Um, you know, didn't work for um, the companies he said he worked for. We didn't say um, they were. I wouldn't say they were true stories, but he's really good at making up stories. Um, yeah. And so, you know, right. Chris, this is, uh, I don't think you, you really did a lot of political ads if you ever did any. No, none. <laughs> none. So, but I mean, this is sort of, uh, it's a wisdom, too. One of the things you can do in a political ad is don't talk about policies, tell a really compelling story. And it seems to work pretty well. It might not be the most honest way to market a candidate. Yeah, I, I, it's uh, political advertising is, I find, really difficult, uh, it, awful, really. But you got to, any form of human expression can be used for good or evil. And something as powerful as storytelling can absolutely be used for uh, deceptive and uh, dishonest uh, means, ways. So, you know, I, it, and, it, and it's regrettable, really. And it's for people, I think the professor is trying to get us all to be more critical, to uh, have a to look at these things with more of a gimlet eye and not just suck in this stuff as if it's uh, received truth. 
All right, I'm going to play one more ad for you guys because I think there's also a question about whether storytelling always makes you want the thing you're being told a story about. I'm going to play a commercial for Skittles. And the thing you need to know is that every time this main character in the the commercial touches anything, like a stapler, kind of uh, Thanos-style, it just kind of dissolves into a bunch of Skittles. So here's B4, Cat. Hey, Tim, show Joel how everything you touch turns into Skittles. That's awesome. Is it awesome? Well, you can't hold your newborn baby boy in your arms. Did you feed and dress yourself this morning? I didn't. I met a man on the bus today. I shook his hand. He'll never see his family again. I guess that's pretty awesome. Excuse me. Touch the rainbow. Taste the rainbow. So, Chris Knopf, it's a really funny commercial. I don't know that it really makes me want Skittles. Yeah, <laughs> it is really funny. Um, and I think really, at the end of the day, name recognition often is all you really need to get across. Um, and if you see those spots enough that Skittles somehow, I guess, gets embedded in your subconscious and uh, that then it works, you know. But not all these spots work, that's for sure. So... Peter Brooks, having in 1984 written a book about the power of narrative, I, I think I assume you look at some of these commercials that use that kind of storytelling and narrative as kind of an abusive narrative. Uh, that's actually kind of a terrifying narrative when you take it apart. You know, um, <laughs> everything through the skittle. Um, yeah, I I think it's abusive. Um, uh, you know, its aim is fairly harmless. It just wants to make you buy something. But uh, when they become public narratives um, that are that are toxic and that um, mobilize people to action, um, then they become very worrisome. All right. So we're going to have to wind this up. But uh, thanks to Chris Knopp for coming back. Uh, if you want to ex- experience his creativity these days, you got to go to a bookstore uh, instead of looking for advertising. Uh, so uh, we're going to um, depart right now. We're going to come back. We're going to talk finally about the power uh, and abuse of narrative in conspiracy theories. I'm Chiquita Banana and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you You can put them in a salad No, not yet, my dear That greenish way you're looking means that you are ripe for cooking How about me? No, no, when you are fully ripe, my dear Those little flecks of brown appear Me? You're most digestible, my friend We are back. Uh, time to say some thank yous. We're going to start with Kat Pastor, our technical producer, and then the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson. She is the producer of this particular episode. Thanks to both of them. Uh, with us for the whole way is Peter Brooks, author of Seduced by Story, The Use and Abuse of Narrative, and Professor Emeritus of Comparative Literature at Yale University. Joining us now also is Elise Wong, uh, an assistant professor at the Department of English for com- uh, in Comparative Literature and Linguistics at California State University Fullerton. Uh, Peter Brooks was Elise Wong 
Young's advisor in grad school, I believe. Uh, so there's a, a connection here. We're talking about conspiracy stories, conspiracy theories. Uh, Elise Wong, I'm going to have you get us going. One thing that we can say about them, conspiracy theories are stories. And they are often stories that are very hard to kill, right? They, they, they tell a false narrative, but the burden is on the falsified person to prove that the story is wrong. Maybe you can say, tell us how this stretches back at least as far as the Middle Ages, if not further. Yeah. So, um, hi. Hi. Um, my, what I study is their sort of inheritance from the medieval period. So I look back at things like blood libel which is the theory that Jewish people use Christian children's blood at Passover for rituals. Um, And so it was a piece of propaganda that was used to incite racial violence, um, was used to incite pogroms, and was usually um, propagated by people who had something to gain from it. So like the local bishop who wanted to put his town on the map with a local martyr, things like that. So so they, they give you a good sense of how conspiracy theories have always operated. And the thing is, I would say they are good stories, but they, they really are always the same story. The, the story is basically that, um, you know, there are monsters out to get us, but they have concealed their presence for most people. And only a few, a chosen few know the truth. And if you are a believer, you are one of the people in the know. And so you are, you are sort of a kind of crusader for the truth and opposed by these evil forces. And that means that the conspiracy theory itself usually has no narrative, right? If you ask a 9-11 conspiracy theorist what they think actually happened, they can't tell you. Um, if you ask some, someone who thinks that January 6th was a false flag situation, they can't tell you what they think happened. They can just tell you what they don't think happened. Right. Although I've talked to quite a few uh, 9-11 so-called truthers. That's really the, mm-hmm. really the wrong word for them. They often do have very well-worked-out theories that there were explosives, frequently in the third building. Uh, and, I mean, they've got all kinds of ideas uh, about what happened. But, you know, I think also, and I'd love for you both to react to this. Peter, maybe I'll start with you. There's also something very thrilling to people about the disruption of a ca- canonical narrative, right? That something that appeared to be settled truth is now going to be disrupted in the, I think it was in the 1980s. There was a putatively nonfiction book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, and the authors put forward the idea that that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, and they had three children, and they settled in southern France and all this other stuff. And, of course, Dan Brown, the novelist, kind of ran with that, this notion that there are arcane uh, uh, narratives that have been concealed from you. That's a very powerful thing to say to somebody, right? They haven't told you the whole story. That's that's right. I mean, the— to be told that there's a truer story, an inside story, which nobody else knows, is very exciting. Um, but some of them are so bizarre in our own time. I mean, like the ping pong pizza, I actually have been at ping pong pizza in Washington, D.C., which was supposed to be the center of a, of a, of a child molestation uh, conspiracy. I mean, wow. Right. And, you know, Elise, I think the other problem with some of those th- th- uh, theories is proving a negative, right? Proving uh, proving that the story is wrong when the story isn't really constructed um, out of testable facts. 
Well, yeah, I think that's sort of the that's the in the design of conspiracy theories is they're supposed to waffle a bit. They're supposed to be like they're supposed to be flexible in this way. So that if you disprove one part of it or it's it's just so obviously disproven, then you can still shift and keep the the essence of the narrative, which is that what you've been told is wrong, that that you're you're being duped. And I feel like that's really the essence of conspiracy theories is everybody else is being duped. And, and like you're saying, there's there's a, a truer narrative behind it that can be revealed by belief in this. I think also another thing that at least on a contemporary basis feeds conspiracy theories is if, if the canonical story or the you know, more or less factual story isn't told well or has things that are very difficult to believe. And uh, I think Peter and I are old enough, but you are not, to have direct memories of the JFK assassination. But, you know, one of the reasons that conspiracies rose up is that, you know, the Warren Commission report, among other things, wanted everybody to believe that uh, that a single bullet caused all the wounds to Governor Connolly and the non-fatal wounds to the president. Uh, seven entry or exit wounds in both men from one bullet. And, and when you see that unfold in real time and you see somebody trying to brief the press about it and Tom Wicker and Dan Rather are yelling out questions, at least in a way, something like that makes people also have doubts. If the story isn't told well and effectively at the very beginning, there's a tendency to want to poke at it. I think that's true, but also sometimes you just can't tell the story well at the beginning, right? If you're in this in this era of breaking news where everything is unfolding by the minute and the fun thing on the news is to follow it minute by minute, you're going to tell terrible stories to begin with, or you're going to tell false stories. Like there's kind of a choice. You can either tell a badly constructed one because you don't have all the pieces or you can tell a false story. And so I do think it's important to try to be careful to construct a story that is um, coherent and believable, but it also depends on sort of the culture of trust around these institutions. I mean, I think why conspiracy theories are taking off so well is, is the process of undermining the institutions we generally used to trust, like some kinds of news media, like scientists, like um, academic production. Yeah. And I think also, Peter, there's a way in which sometimes you, by the way, uh, if people want to read more about that part of the JFK assassination, there's a terrific book by Barbie Zelizer called Covering the Body, the Kennedy assassination, the media and the shaping of collective memory that really kind of gets into like how all of this stuff got so confused. But, uh, Peter, there's also a great book by Michael Shudson called Watergate in American Memory. Uh, and and he talks about the fact that there wasn't a good storytelling apparatus for Watergate. If you ask the average person who was old enough to have lived through the time of Watergate to tell the story of Watergate, most people can't do it. They can they maybe know about a third-rate uh, burglary and an impeachment and a couple of phrases. You know, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. But they can't really tell you the facts. And I think part of that is... There isn't a good apparatus. There isn't a Watergate museum, to the best of my knowledge. A lot of the places that were important, the, like the plumber's room and the executive office, office building doesn't exist anymore. There's no holiday for Watergate. June 17th comes and goes. You know, in a way, to understand something, to you have to have some kind of storytelling apparatus. Yes, and you have to, as, as uh, Chris was saying, have to have a, a beginning, middle, and end. I was thinking of the of the COVID story and the origins of COVID, which became so important and so full of conspiracy theories in the very beginning. You remember escape from a lab in China and so on and so forth. I think 
proves uh, Alicia's point very much. Right. Although that one is also, I remember John Stewart saying, it's a little bit like saying that there's a, been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness in Hershey, Pennsylvania, but it's not coming from the candy bar factory. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a way in which the, the it didn't escape from a lab. Well, <laughs> you know, that's kind of hard to believe because it's there is one in Wuhan. So uh, to that point, Elise, and we're running out of time here, but, you know, I think we're about to go through another cycle of this. The Republicans are going to take over the Judiciary Committee and, and all the other committees, too, in the House. And I, I assume, you know, Anthony Fauci is going to be dragged in and asked, forced to explain why conspiracy theories about him are not true. Uh, so we're back to that idea of proving a negative, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I think that will probably happen in, in other sort of similar situations. And, and the thing is, they're not actually interested in, in having that conversation. The point would be to show, to, to use him as sort of a pawn to show their loyalty to the party to sort of express their political views it's more about the story they're creating for their viewers than anything that he could say it really wouldn't matter what he says honestly um so i i don't think that there's a way to sort of anticipate that that's just sort of that's just what they are what they would be trying to do with those committees so uh, we're almost out of time here, but Peter Brooks, I want you to have the last word. And here's my question. You know, in the next 10 years, we'll see more and more ag- algorithms trying to boil away the particulars of us down to story less formulas about us. And artificial intelligence will be trying to replace us and our personal stories. Are you going to be back in five or 10 years with a third book called Not So Fast, Why Humanizing Stories Are Really Worth Preserving? Interesting question. Actually, I think the stories are still going to be around, and AI may be uh, very effective at generating them from 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 the givens you you input in into your computer. Yes. Uh, no, I think stories are still going to be a, a dominant form of understanding reality and understanding our lives. After all, we are time bound, and narrative is about meanings that unfold in time. Yes, true. Although alarmingly, I've actually asked that new. GPT chatbot to write me a story uh, about various things. And it's alarmingly good at writing the story. And all I'll say is write a story about a man and a woman who adopt a penguin, you know, and it'll write a story. (laughs) And I'm a a little bit scared by it, but you should try it. You're the guy who wrote the book. All right. Thanks so much to both of you, to Peter Brooks. Uh, His book is Seduced by Story, The Use and Abuse of Narrative. Uh, Elise Wong, Assistant Professor in the Department of English uh, in Comparative Literature at California State University, Fullerton. Check out her TED Talk, Why Some Conspiracy Theories Won't Die. Nothing that will last Where I was, what I was doing Nothing but the moon